You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The FBI warns of malicious advertising. A new gang makes an unwelcome appearance in the holiday season. Ukraine will receive more Starlink terminals after all. Cyber phases of the hybrid war? A view from Kiev. The Bears and their adjuncts are opportunistic agents of chaos. Kayla Barlow thinks boards of directors need to up their cybersecurity game. Our guest is AJ Nash from Zero Fox with a look at legislative restrictions on TikTok. And reports say that U.S. National Cyber Director Chris Inglis is preparing to retire. We wish him the best of luck. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. The FBI has issued a warning that cyber criminals are actively pursuing victims by dangling malicious ads in front of them. The Bureau says cyber criminals are using search engine advertisement services to impersonate brands and direct users to malicious sites that host ransomware and steal login credentials and other financial information. The Bureau points out that, of course, advertising isn't necessarily or inherently nefarious— but that Internet users should approach the ads their search engines deliver with the same informed skepticism they would bring to any other occasion for social engineering. Malvertising can appear in any number of contexts, of course, but the Bureau points out that the recently observed bad behavior has been connected with financial services and often with financial services of a very particular kind. The FBI says in its warning... These advertisements have also been used to impersonate websites involved in finances, particularly cryptocurrency exchange platforms. These malicious sites appear to be real exchange platforms and prompt users to enter login credentials and financial information, giving criminal actors access to steal funds. So there you go. The Bureau doesn't say so, but we will. There's nothing inherently nefarious about cryptocurrencies— nor is there, in principle, anything dicey, shady, or loosey-goosey about the exchanges on which such currencies are traded. 
Whatever the mistakes allegedly made, for example, in the FTX affair, you know, the ones that cut Mr. Bankman-Fried's stay in the Bahamas short, that doesn't mean that all such exchanges and speculation are necessarily crooked or foolhardy. But don't get caught up in the mania. There was nothing inherently nefarious about tulip bulbs in the 1630s either, but that didn't keep a lot of good Dutch burgers from losing their shirts speculating on flowers. The FBI offers advice for individuals. Check URLs, consider using an ad blocker, and if you know a firm's URL, consider typing that instead of searching for the company by name. The Bureau also has some tips for businesses. Use domain protection services and educate your users. So as the madmen of Madison Avenue used to say back in the day, it pays to advertise, and the criminals know this too. Recognizing fraud gets easier when you know that the crooks are buying search engine ads to push their schemes. The fraud the FBI's warning against threatens individuals seeking to make online trades or purchases. There are also threats to businesses engaged in e-commerce. Security firm Signified reported this morning that a new cybercriminal gang has made an appearance during the holiday season— The firm's research indicates that the gang, which appears to be based in Southeast Asia, made a tentative appearance almost a year ago, but hit with full force last month. So, the earlier attempts at fraud were self-consciously trial runs and reconnaissance, Signified thinks. It seems to be a patient, confident, and well-organized retail fraud operation established to bilk online retailers. The unnamed group made off with an estimated $660 million in stolen laptops, cell phones, computer chips, gaming devices, and other goods in the month of November alone. The threat is immediately to e-commerce retailers, only secondarily to consumers. So, as the holidays have a couple of weeks more or less to run, keep your guard up, online merchants. Potential difficulties now resolved, Ukraine says, according to Bloomberg, that it will receive more than 10,000 additional Starlink terminals from SpaceX over the next few months. SpaceX founder Elon Musk had said some things at the end of October that suggested Starlink service to Ukraine might prove too expensive to continue, but those issues have now apparently been addressed. Starlink has been important in restoring and maintaining Ukraine's Internet connectivity briefly disrupted during the opening days of Russia's war. The resilience the satellite-based communications system offers has been of significant value to Ukraine under wartime conditions. Viktor Zora, deputy chief of Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, spoke at length with the Wall Street Journal about the state of cyber operations in the present war. Zora said, We are facing tens of cyber incidents daily. That means that they have a lot of resources, that they are seeking opportunities every day. Their strategy is seeking vulnerabilities, is providing attempts to gain persistence in networks, attempts to exfiltrate data, attempts to disrupt services in Ukrainian government entities, the telecom sector, critical information infrastructure, and seeking impact that they can bring to all the infrastructure. It's a strategy of opportunistic attacks seeking to induce chaos in the target, Zora says, that's the strategy, an opportunistic strategy, a chaotic strategy, but a strategy that is focused on harming Ukraine, on bringing impact to our economy, 
to our infrastructures, to our everyday life, and to our resilience. And finally, CNN reports that Chris Inglis, who since July of 2021 has served as U.S. National Cyber Director, will leave his post in the next few months. He's the first to hold the position, which the administration created last year, and his intention is to retire. We wish him all the best in his final weeks on the job, hope he enjoys a long and happy retirement, and we thank him for his service, not only in the White House, but in the years he spent at NSA before that. Coming up after the break, Caleb Barlow thinks boards of directors need to up their cybersecurity game. Our guest is A.J. Nash from Zero Fox with a look at legislative restrictions on TikTok. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The popular social media platform TikTok continues to draw scrutiny from U.S. legislators primarily over concerns of Chinese ownership of the platform and the potential security implications that come from that. Several U.S. states have banned the TikTok app from government devices, and it looks like the feds are following suit. For more on this story, I checked in with A.J. Nash, vice president and distinguished fellow of intelligence at Zero Fox. There's uh, 19 states now have uh, at least partially blocked access to TikTok on government uh, endpoints, government computers. I think there's actually 20 states. I think Indiana has a lawsuit. West Virginia and Louisiana were the last two to just join. I saw Washington might be next up, so it's going to continue, I think, on the state sides. 
Uh, from the federal standpoint, as you said, uh, the federal government has a ban. In fact, they just shoved that into the $1.7 trillion omnibus funding bill. So it's, uh, it's pretty well accepted as a bipartisan challenge. Um, so I think, I think that's going to pass through because certainly the funding will anyway. Uh, and I don't see this getting cut out or, or argued about. Uh, you know, this, is, this has been brewing for a while. You know, you have a, a company that's based in China that owns uh, this technology. And there really isn't um, – Chinese private enterprise isn't like U.S. or Western private enterprise. Um, the separation between business and government – isn't the same. Uh, Chinese uh, companies can be compelled uh, to cooperate with the government, assuming they don't do it of their own free will anyway. So the risk is is pretty high. And this is a massive platform with a, a lot of content that is almost certainly available to Beijing, you know, to the Chinese government. From your perspective there with your colleagues at Zero Fox, what, what are the legitimate concerns about TikTok in terms of the, the information it gathers uh, both overtly and behind the scenes. Yeah, it's uh, it's that's probably the biggest question you know I get asked right now, or, or we all I think in the industry are being asked is why does this matter? What what is TikTok's threat? What does it do? And you know, there's a subtle piece to this thing people don't necessarily gather. Um, TikTok can be used as a massive collection platform for personal information, for interests, for pattern of life analysis. Uh, it gets into uh, all sorts of sentiment analysis. You know, the Chinese government uh, has invested a lot of time, energy, and money in big data processing, and this is another big data capability. So if you can bring all of that content in, uh, you're able to analyze that and understand what's popular, what's trending, or what what is likely to trend, for instance. Uh, that can be used for sentiment um, uh, manipulation. You know, pop- popular opinion can be changed uh, through social media. Um, you know, also, again, you can collect against just understanding what are what are the trends in marketing? What are the trends in brand? What uh, you know? What might be readiness for military? Right? We have military folks that have been in TikTok. There's so many aspects of collection that come into play with a platform like this. When you think of it in the macro scale, most of us think of us the way we think of ourselves. Well, I'm not doing anything very interesting. I'm just posting a video here, or you know, uh, I want to just put my art there, and not necessarily understanding the larger scale impact uh, as it relates to your to your workplace, as it relates to your your uh, institution of education um, or, or any of those other factors. But to me, the biggest piece is, uh, it comes down to two pieces, I guess. It comes down to the ability to collect uh, just a vast amount of content, again, about, about trends, about personal information, about perhaps business information, and the ability to influence, which I happen to think is incredibly um, concerning right now, and I think the government does as well. We've seen a lot of influence uh, campaigns over the last boy, I don't know, at least six years or so publicly talked about, mm. influencing how people think about vaccines, how people think about elections, how people think about geez, just about anything, right? So the ability to have a platform, to control a platform that can control the message um, in subtle ways that may not be noticed is, is remarkably concerning. Now, the folks who run TikTok are, are saying that uh, – there's a lot of misinformation about what they do and how they do it, and that they've put up their own firewalls to prevent uh, China from demanding this information. Do those arguments hold any water? Well, I I don't have a great deal of faith in those arguments personally, um, and neither does our government apparently based on, on what we're going forth with. I think the challenge we have, and this isn't uh, about trying to demonize anybody, and this is one, I think one of the concerns we have in this country whenever we talk about foreign countries and, and their governments and how they do things, 
is this demonization. That's not the point. China just does things differently. Their government is structured differently. Their, their culture is structured differently. And they have different sets of standards. Whether that's right or wrong is a totally different discussion. But in China, uh, the understanding has been for a long time that there really are no abilities to create firewalls. Companies who decide they want to go against the Chinese government, uh, those leaders don't end up running those companies much longer. You know, so um, I, I appreciate what the leadership for this company is saying, um, you know, and, and I understand the position. It's certainly a, a strong business position to take. But no, I don't happen to, to believe that there's the ability to withstand government intervention. In fact, it's written directly into the laws in China that the Chinese government can demand this content. So my assumption, and I think our government's assumption, is, is that this information goes to, to Beijing. How much do you think this is going to matter, the, the banning of TikTok on, on the devices of folks in the government, at the state level, at the federal level? Uh, it's still presumably going to be as popular as ever for consumers. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, this is a good symbolic gesture. I think it's important. But frankly, TikTok probably shouldn't have been on any of these devices to begin with. You know, there, there would be few, if any, people within government agencies who would have an official need to be using TikTok. And if it, you don't have an official need for anything, any technology, it shouldn't be on the device, you know, when you're talking about government, state, or, or federal government. So I would imagine in most cases, these already didn't exist. Uh, for those who've had TikTok on their endpoints, on their phones or on their computers, chances are they were doing it in violation of some policy anyway, and they'll just be rooted out. So I don't think it's going to have a massive impact in that regard. I think you're right. I think hundreds of millions of people use this platform in private uh, lives and will continue to. I do think this can create the next step, though. If you see governments start taking these actions, then you could be looking at private companies say, well, we should probably follow suit. Uh, there's a reason to believe there's a risk. So you'll see private companies start to take this action. And then the question becomes, how far do you project that out? Can a private company have a policy about how their employees uh, interact or, or work within social media, which I think we've proven that is absolutely possible to do. So I think we're going to see this continue to grow. Um, and that's where I believe the impact will come is when we see the government, if we see private enterprise, start having policies about how their own employees are able to interact on social media uh, in places like TikTok. And, and they may well be banned from having any reference to the company within TikTok. And that could open up all sorts of other discussions. That's AJ Nash from Zero Fox. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. He is the founder and CEO at Silite. Uh, Caleb, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. You know, something you and I have talked about in the past is the positions of boards of directors and you know the, the degree to which they have expertise in cybersecurity. Where do you suppose we stand now? Well, let's talk about this in the context of a public company, Dave. And you know, this this topic comes up about every six months. You know, the Securities and Exchange Commission weighed on this issue earlier in the year by proposing new rules for public companies and how they oversee cybersecurity. There's even a bill in Congress that's proposed a similar rule. And the idea being that, you know, various regulators saying, hey, boards of directors need to have someone on the board with cybersecurity expertise. And, and you know, at first blush, this sounds like a really good idea. Uh, and I think it is. But we as the cybersecurity industry have probably got to start stepping up our game to both be prepared for this, but also to help define what is an acceptable skill as cybersecurity expertise. And what's interesting 
when you talk with boards, you hear all kinds of crazy stuff about how somebody had, oh, well, we had a breach in my past company, so I have cybersecurity expertise. Oh, I really? see. Really? You have expertise as a victim. That's probably not ideal, right? But Right. Like saying I was, uh, I was, uh, I was in a plane crash, so I, I can fly the plane. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so there is an analog here, which is really how financial expertise, which is also required on a board of directors, is mm-hmm. structured and the structure of the audit committee. So the basic idea is that a board needs to have independent board members. So keyword here, independent, meaning that they're not part of the company's management that has financial expertise. So this would typically be somebody that's maybe a CFO or a retired CFO at another company. In addition to that, there's an audit committee. And, you know, so that is, again, a committee of the independent board, typically with more than one person that has financial expertise that is supplemented with, you know, a company that's doing the audit. Well, think of the analog in a cybersecurity company. You probably have a third-party assessor that is kind of equivalent to that audit, that is evaluating the company and providing advice and guidance. And they're probably now reporting that in and are hired by the board versus hired by the CISO. But that individual with cybersecurity expertise is probably a CISO at another company and or a retired CISO or maybe somebody with prior law enforcement experience or investigative experience Mm. We've got to start seeing that those skills step up, but it's going to mean that we've got to do some things as a community to up our skills. Well, so what does the vetting process look like then, ideally? Well, the first thing to understand about corporate boards is there's definitely a demographic. And unfortunately, cybersecurity is going to break this demographic, right? If if we look at who's on boards, it's typically people 50 plus that are either retired or near retirement and have lots of expertise. That's why you want them on your board, right? Well, guess what? Anybody over 50 didn't grow up. You know, nobody over 50 went to school and studied cybersecurity. This is too new of a field. Mm. So now, granted, there's plenty of 50-year-olds that have migrated into it. Um, yeah. But I think the reality here is the first thing we have to recognize is boards are going to have to start getting comfortable bringing some talent onto the board that's probably significantly younger than a lot of the board members. And it's, which also probably means they're still in the middle of their career, which is also very different than what you have on boards. But as a community, we're going to need to start stepping up our skills because the language and discussion at a board level and the expectations of someone at a board is totally different than what you would see in a management meeting, right? You're, you're there to guide and advise, not to run the company. And that's a very different set of skills than, you know, a lot of us, a lot of CISOs out there have today. Well, help me understand. So should we be looking for board members for whom their primary role is to be the cyber person? Or are we looking for board members who we bring in for other reasons, but who have a certain degree of cyber knowledge as well? Well, let's think of it in terms of how the governance flows. Now, governance is a key word here because that's what a board does is provides governance. So when the CFO prepares the financial statement for the company, they prepare it. It's evaluated by a third-party auditor. They present it to the audit committee. The audit committee asks questions. And more often than not, the audit committee may have directions that they want the CFO to take in terms of, you know, 
how specific costs may be evaluated, moving you know specific funds around, what level of you know cash we maintain at the company. Those discussions are going to occur at the board level. They're collaborative, but at the end of the day, they're a top-down discussion from the board where the board is ultimately deciding on the strategy and the CFO is an instrumental part of defining that as well, but the CFO is executing it, right? Mm-hmm. Now let's contrast that with the discussion that occurs today with your average CISO walking into a board meeting. The CISO walks into the board meeting and explains the cybersecurity posture of the company and is educating the board. The board, without the cybersecurity expertise, has no idea, most often than not, what in the world the CISO is talking about, and they're getting educated by the CISO. So the board is making really a decision of, do I trust this individual in their judgment or not? Which is fine, but they're not able to approach the, the question, they're not able to approach the data that they're being fed inquisitively, ask questions from their own experience, and give maybe unique and different direction. And that's where we have a governance breakdown more often than not on corporate boards. Now, it doesn't mean the CISO is not doing a great job. What it means is that the board doesn't know whether the CISO is doing a great job or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the solution then? I, ideally, where, where do, how do we handle this? Uh, it's really simple, right? I, I think we've got to do a couple of things. One, at, you know, if you're a CEO at a public company, you need to be bringing your CISO into more board meetings than you do. And look, people like to keep those conversations tight to a limited audience. But the fact of the matter is that CISO has got to start to learn the language of the board, how that conversation occurs, what the expectations are, what board members want to see. And the only way that's going to occur is by being in the room. What that also means is the CISO has got to start to listen to those conversations and leverage every opportunity they get to sit on boards. And then, you know, as board chairmen, you've got to kind of put aside the past demographics of who you typically have on your board and start reaching out and bringing in CISOs from other companies, from other industries, from law enforcement, et cetera, onto your boards and expecting them to have a integral interaction in those board conversations. Yeah. All right. Well, Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.